Ladies, welcome. Hanukkah Sameach. Today's Shi'ur is being studied there. Do Nishmat Abraham Benish Ben Yechiel Yehudah Kohen Mandel Ruach Adonai Tenichenu Began Eden Uti Nishmatot Tzirura B'Tzor HaChayim. Amen. I don't have a homage in front of me, as you can see, because I would like to uh, direct my comments this afternoon on timely topics that are related specifically to the holiday of Hanukkah that we are in the, uh, the midst of celebrating. These are uh, special and new ideas that I'd like to present to our members that uh, will explain, God willing, some themes that surround the Hag. There's one main question that I came to address today from different angles. To be honest with you, uh, as you know already, uh, I treat the ladies' class no different uh, than the yeshiva. Uh, I don't have two standards of classes. Whatever I would say in front of the boys in the yeshiva, I say in front of the ladies as well. I don't think the ladies deserve a uh, diluted version of anything that you know, anything that a yeshiva man can understand, I believe our women, especially in our class that are sophisticated, uh, can understand as well. <clears throat> and that's why I tell you many times when people come to me and say, I listened to the class and the most, the biggest hindush of the class was when you said ladies. <laughs> and I wasn't aware that you were talking to ladies, I thought you were talking to men, the, way, the, the, the level of, uh, of uh, toche and of content. So the question that I came to address this afternoon is one, but from this one question, many questions will arise and we'll have many ideas that will be developed. As you know, the Gemara in Megillah and in Shabbat on page 21b talks about different levels of fulfilling the mitzvah of Nerot Hanukkah, which is a, which is a hadush in itself that there's three levels the way you could fulfill the mitzvah. Level one being to light one candle a night for the whole house, just one candle, uh, which is a very basic way of fulfilling the mitzvah. I don't think we ever saw anybody fulfill it in that simplistic way, but it's an option. I mean, if a person only has one candle to his name, he can fulfill the mitzvah, light the one candle, and you did the mitzvah. But then the Gemara says there's a higher level called mehadrin. Mehadrin... I'm assuming mehadrin means to do the mitzvah in a better way. Mehadrin from the Lashon, hidur mitzvah. Just like, you know, there's many different types of etrogim you could buy, but if you buy a nice etrog, it's hidur. And they want us to do the mitzvah of Hanukkah, or they, they give us an option to do it in a mehadrin way, in a more uh, nice or choice way. And that is... Uh, that we light one candle for everybody in the house. So if you have 10 people living in the house, every night you light 10 candles. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And then you have mehadrin mina mehadrin, which is the, uh, the choice of the choice, the creme de la creme. That's the, the best way to fulfill the mitzvah. Mehadrin mina mehadrin, which is actually the way we light the menorah. The first light we light one ner, and then the next light two, and the next light three, and we go up until the last night, there's eight. So there's different levels how to fulfill the mitzvah. Something that you don't really see by other mitzvot. Usually by other mitzvot they tell you this is how much matzah you have to eat. 
and that's it. That's the shiur. They don't say, well, you know, if you want to do the mitzvah the right way, it's an ounce. And if you really want to be, you know, strict, two ounces. And if you want to get a stomachache, three ounces. They don't tell you that. They tell you, eat an ounce. But I want to eat more. Good luck to you. You don't have to eat more. That's the shiur. There's, 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 they don't give you three grades. They don't tell you this is the coach, and this is business class, and this is first class. They just tell you, do the mitzvah. Why on Hanukkah did they introduce to us all of a sudden levels of mahadrin, mahadrin, which is like uh, basic and then strict and then super strict. And I'm, I'm happy to say, and whether you know it or not, everybody on Hanukkah is a mahadrin, mina mahadrin. Now we're all mahadrin on Hanukkah. Even people that are not super strict all year long in their observance, those are people that just like to do the bare minimum to get a 65 and get a passing grade and, you know, we're done, 9 to 5. But on Hanukkah, did you ever see anybody not light the menorah like we light it? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Whether they know it or not, they're all being super strict. And uh, I think we might surprise some people if we tell them, hey, you know, technically you're lighting a lot more than you have to. You can get away with one. And they might say, hey, come nobody told me that. Well, no secret, it's a Gemara, but for some reason, the Gemara introduces a, a super strict uh, uh, level, and that's the way it has become the custom of the Jewish people on Hanukkah to behave in a super strict manner. And my question is, why? So it's a simple question. I'll give an answer. I'll wish you a good day, and I'll tell you Shabbat Shalom, and... Uh, see you next week. That's that's basically the way the class will uh, will work. It's an easy format. So let's go one approach. One approach might be, what was the miracle? The miracle was that they found some oil, and uh, it was untainted. It was sealed with the Kohenga door seal. It was pure oil, and a miracle took place that the oil lasted for eight days. Now, the Greeks actually went and they, um, they contaminated all the oils. This was a concentrated effort. That means they went into the Beit HaMikdash on purpose to make sure that all the oils will be defiled. That was a... That was something that was intentional. That was not just like just chaos and then it happened to be that they said, wow, all the oils are, are impure. No, when they went in, that was the agenda. The general who's in charge of the Greeks is telling the soldiers, the uh, objective of this mission is to taint all the oils. That was a kavanah. And they did it 99%, but Hashem made a miracle and one pach remained uh, in, uh, intact, which is ultimately the... Uh, the flash that they were able to use to light the menorah, and from that came the miracle that it lasted for eight days. Now, I don't want to burst anybody's uh, bubble over here and Hasbush Shalom uh, make the holiday anticlimactic. It's a great holiday, but uh, to be honest with you, uh, I'm not too sure if they needed to use this kosher, pure oil, and then subsequently have to rely on our miracle. I don't know if you're aware of the halakha. Halakha says that if there's not pure oil available, you're allowed to use impure oil. 
I mean, I just pulled the, pulled the carpet under the whole holiday of Hanukkah. And we're all making a big deal. Hey, they found the oil, they found the oil. Guess what? Even if they didn't find the oil, they probably could have lit the menorah with any oil. It's a law. Now, of course, if you have oil, you have to use it, but they didn't have it. They only had enough for one night. So therefore, they had every right technically to use even contaminated oil. I'll speak it out clear. That means technically they should have said, what a shame. No, kosher oil. They should have taken some of those flasks that the Greeks defiled and they could have asked the chief rabbi at the time, Matityahu and the Kwanim, and they would have said, yeah, we have no, no problem, you could use it. But rabbi, it's impure. That's the law. If there's no oil but impure oil, you could light the menorah. And then the question becomes, so then why did they specifically go out of their way to light with this flask with the Kohen's seal on it, why did they use pure oil? So you know what it seems? It seems that the Hashmonaim were being super strict. They were being mehadrin, mehadrin. They were doing something above the law. And that might explain why they introduced on Hanukkah a level called being super strict, mehadrin, mehadrin, because that's what the Kohanim did they didn't have to use this oil. They could have used contaminated oil and they behaved in a very mehadrin way and therefore we're modeling the way the Hashmonaim acted. Understand how we're learning? Now I know what you're going to ask me. Why were they being strict? You know, the question is, why be strict when you don't have to? Well, I believe, and I heard this from Rav Asher Weiss, that they believed that they had to. Not halachically, but hashkafically. I'll explain. Can I ask you a simple question? Why did the Greeks make the oil impure? I have a better idea. Why not just pour it out? Why not just break the flasks? What was the intention to make them impure? You know what the explanation is? The Greeks, if you know the whole story, what they were coming against, they weren't coming against uh, the Jewish people per se, but they wanted to introduce um, their ideology and their philosophy into Judaism. So they wanted to add a flavor of Greek uh, thinking and a you know, way of uh, you know, their ideas into Judaism. That's why, if you remember early on, they had the Torah translated into Greek. That's early on. Because they wanted to make a, you know, a Greek version of the Bible, which was their own interpretation. So they wanted to add their own seasoning and their own uh, uh, flavor to Judaism. Now, that's why they didn't destroy the temple. Other enemies destroyed the temple. They put a pagan in the temple. They put Abu Nazarah in the temple, which they're basically saying, we're not against the temple, but you know, we should have a representation as well in the temple. So the temple should have a, you know, Abu Nazarah, and you can do your God also. And, and the Torah is nice in Hebrew, but it's also nice in Greek. 
And therefore they were trying to infiltrate and dilute the purity of Torah. And what they were saying by defiling the oil is, we're not telling you don't like the menorah. Like the menorah, just use our oil. Understand? If they didn't want us to like the menorah, they would have poured the oil out. The fact that they contaminated it and they left it intact was their way of saying, yeah, you have oil, use it. And in any other case, we probably would have used it if it was just a scenario where we couldn't find oil, but not in this situation. Because this situation would be giving in to the Greeks. Because that's exactly what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to use their oil. They wanted us to use their Torah. They wanted us to use their philosophy. They wanted to infiltrate their ideas into... So therefore there would be no option for us. Even though under normal circumstances you might be able to use non-pure oil, but here it has a, uh, uh, a, a, a an underlying... Uh, reason why we could have not used it because that would be basically telling the Greeks you know uh, we accept your deal uh, they were trying to hijack the religion and by using their oil basically we're saying we accept your terms and I want you to know we went to war for this the reason why the Chasmini went to war is that we're not going to accept Judaism on Greek terms we're accepting Judaism on God's terms so to use their oil would actually be um, would actually giving in to the enemy. And that's why they were mahadir. And since they acted in a super strict way, which they, I believe they had to, so therefore Hanukkah becomes then the same understanding that we act in a super strict way. So that's one approach. Not everybody likes this approach for the following reason. And what I'm telling you now comes from a rabbi called Shlomo Kluger. Shlomo Kluger, Allah Shalom, he says, yes, it's true. You're allowed to use impure oil if you don't have any oil. But that's only when the Beta Mikdash is in process, in progress. And you're lighting the menorah every single day, and one day you didn't couldn't find oil, then you could use impure oil. But when you're starting the process, when you're inaugurating on the first day you're lighting on inauguration day, that has to be done with pure oil. And you can't use impure oil. And therefore, he says, they weren't being strict. Because this was an inauguration of the, of the menorah. They hadn't lit the menorah for so long. And like we say in the Ma'asur, they were re-inaugurating the temple. And therefore, in inauguration, you have no option but to use pure oil. So the Hashmonaim were not being strict at all. They were not being super strict. They were being halakhically proper. They had no choice, according to Rav Kluger, to use this oil, because this is an inauguration. And when you start something, you can't start it with a compromise. You can't start it with Tamer oil and say, well, this is the first day. You don't start off the inauguration on the left foot. The first time you're doing something, you got to do it right. Now, once you got it underway, if something happened in the interim, okay, then we'll let you have a dispensation, but not on day one. 
So the Hashmonaim were acting according to the halakha. So then we're back to the million dollar question. Where does Mehadrin then enter the, uh, the holiday? So according to Shlomo Kugler, they weren't being strict. So therefore, why do we have to be strict? So I'd like to introduce a very, very novel approach uh, in your honor. Just follow it. To, you need to follow the steps. I'm going to give it to you in order. Just listen and you'll understand it. It's not difficult, it's just it's steps. So they find a, a Pach Shemin uh, in, the, um, in the temple. And the Gemara says, the Gemara that we have says, and there was enough for one night. And the miracle wasn't less than eight. Do you know that we have variant texts in the Talmud? Because the Talmud is from 2,500 years ago. And there's different versions and sometimes there's one word difference or one little uh, 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 letter and it changes the whole meaning of the Gemara. The Gemara that we have says is they found a jug of oil that had enough for one night. But there's another version of the Geonim that says the following. They found a jug of oil that didn't even have enough for one night. You hear this? That in the jug of oil there wasn't even enough for the first night. Nice, nice text. And I had a simple question. Why would they make a jug of oil for the menorah that doesn't have the right amount? <laughs> I mean, if, if let's say, for argument's sake, the menorah takes 10 ounces of oil, so don't you think they would make flasks of oil that have at least 10 ounces? Why would you make an 8-ounce flask for a menorah that needs... Ten ounces. I mean, whoever was doing the measuring obviously makes a, it's a terrible, uh, terrible mistake over here. Knowing the shiur of the menorah, why would you make a flesh that doesn't have the right amount? Well, God, that got some of the rabbis thinking. I want to ask you a question, ladies. I know they used oil for the menorah. Is there anything else in the Beit HaMikdash that they used oil for? Anointing the kings, okay. What you mean anointing the kohanim and the vessels? That's correct. But that's, that's a rare event. Uh, is there something in the Beit HaMikdash that they used oil on a more daily, a more constant? The Ner Tamid. No, Ner Tamid is the menorah. That's the menorah. That's the menorah. Outside of the menorah. What about the chala? Oh, they, 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 was there oil in the chala? I'm not sure. I don't know the ingredients. I thought it was just flour and water. I don't think they made it like we make it with eggs and you know seeds and stuff like that. It was a very simple, basic. It, it was it was simple, basic, uh, basic. All right, ladies. So so okay. It's okay not to know everything. It's okay not to know everything. It's okay not to know. Rabbi's here. Rabbi's here. I'll explain it to you. Uh, yes, there was another use for oil in the Beit Hamikdash. And that was for the meal offerings, for the minha. Oh, now everybody knows. I'll explain it to you. Which means, anytime somebody brought a korban, the korban has three parts. The meat, which is the actual korban, and then you had to pour wine on the mizbeah. You can have meat without wine. And you need also 
uh, a, uh, a starch so, or a bread. So what did they do? They brought a meal offering. It's made of flour mixed with oil and frankincense. It's a type of spice. It says in the Torah, solet bedula bashemen lemenha. So therefore, oil was a very common ingredient to Beit HaMikdash outside of the menorah. It was also used for menachot. So every single day, uh, it was a, one of the most common ingredients you'd find in the Beit HaMikdash. Beautiful. Now let me tell you a law. There's a Kohen. There's two types of Kohanim. There's Kohen Hedyot, which is a regular Kohen, and then there's Kohen Gadol, which is the... That Kohen. Let's talk about Kohen Idiot for a minute. You're going to learn something today. Kohen Idiot, on the day that he's inaugurated, his first day of service, he must bring a special minha. It's called minhat havitin of a Kohen Idiot. What does it consist of? Flour, oil, frankincense. He brings it, and he comes in and says, Labotai, this is my first day on the job. Oh, congratulations. And they take a picture of him, and he puts it on the Mizbeach, and that's it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime minha. On day two, the Kohen Idiot now just goes and works. He doesn't got to bring the minhat habitin. It's just opening day on the day that his service is uh, uh, inaugurated. Now, if you're a Kohen Gadol, you have to bring minhat habitin every day, which is, you know, an amazing thing. I mean, if you, if you looked on the Beit HaMikdash's website, they tell you at 9 o'clock every morning, go to the Beit HaMikdash, and you'll see the Kohen Gadol standing by the Mizbeach, bringing the Minhat Habitin. That was a daily Minha. I guess, you know, they want the Kohen Gadol to be, uh, you know, every day is a new day. They want him to feel refreshed, and they want him to feel rejuvenated, so therefore they want his service to be, you know, exciting and inspiring. So every day they told him he has to bring an inaugural sacrifice. Very nice. Oh. And this sacrifice, this minha, who pays for it? It's a good question. Uh, in this case, the Torah says he's got to be out of pocket for it. He's got to pay for it himself. He can't send a, uh, an expense to the treasury of the Beit HaMikdash. They'll send it right back to him and say... This is not our responsibility. It's your mincha. You got to pay for it yourself. That's interesting. It's very good. So now we learned something. You learned about the Kohen Gadol. You learned about the minhat habitin of the Kohen Gadol. And you learned that it was brought every day. So there's a theory out there. And I, I happen to appreciate this theory and I enjoy it. It's written by a rabbi called Shabbat Shilmi. And he says that it's quite possible that the oil in that flask was not menorah oil. It was minha oil. It wasn't designated for the menorah. And should I prove it to you? I know, erase what you learned in first grade, but you remember they told you that the flask of oil had the seal of the Kohen Gadol on it? Can I ask you a simple question? What was the seal of the Kohen Gadol doing on the oil? How did you learn till now? What was it doing there? What was the seal doing? I'll tell you how you learned. No, that's to show that it's kosher. Now, <laughs> I went through the job description of the Kohen Gadol. He's not in charge of the kashrut of the Beit HaMikdash. That's the Mashkiyah's job. That's the OU's job, not the Kohen Gadol's job. 
the Kohen Gadol was not in the kitchen making sure the products were kosher, that he has to put his seal of uh, kashrut on it. I know you, you almost said, oh yeah, for sure, seal of the Kohen Gadol. As, as if it's accepted that the Kohen Gadol has to put a seal on the oil. And I'm asking you... Yeah, top quality. But, but, but what is that? What is that going to do, Kohen Gadol? That's that's quality control. The, the guy who's in charge of providing the oil, you, you go to the store, you get a good kashrut badatz betin sedik avirushalayim, and they tell you this is good oil over there. Nobody ever goes to the Kohen Gadol and says, oh, "We need you to turn on the uh, uh, the uh, the stove so we don't have bishul Israel, bishul akum, so we can make scrambled eggs for the kohanim." I'm not the meshkiyah. Go, go 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 to the caterer. That's not the Kohen Gadol's job to provide kashrut. So you know what the seal of the Kohen Gadol was doing on this oil? <laughs> it basically was saying, private property. Private property. Don't touch. <laughs> if you went into the Kohen Gadol's locker, you'd probably see flasks of oil that he brought from home for his daily minha. So the, the seal of the Kohen Gadol basically is saying, don't touch. You know, touch at your own risk. This is my stuff. Keep away. That, that's what the Kohen Gadol seal. It wasn't, it wasn't offering a kashrut to the oil. It was just telling us that it was his oil. Very nice so far. Now let's just go a little further. Anybody know how much oil was used for the menorah on a daily basis? I know. There was seven cups on the menorah. And each cup held a half a log of oil. Don't ask me how much a log is. Doesn't matter. It's a measurement. So a half a log in each cup times seven. Easy mathematics. Seven times a half is three and a half. So the menorah takes 3.5 lugin. Last question. How much log does the minha of a Kohen Gadol take? Three. Now we understand why there wasn't enough oil in the flask even for one night. Because this oil was not menorah oil, it was minhat habitin of the Kohen Gadol oil, and for the minhat habitin you only need three, Lugina, not 3.5. And now we understand why there was a seal of the Kohen Gadol, because it belonged to the Kohen Gadol. So nice. Such a beautiful... I'll, t- I'll tell you what else it answers. So, there's a famous question of the Bet Yosef, you must have heard it. The Bet Yosef of Icaro asks, why is the holiday eight nights? The miracle wasn't on the first night. On the first night, they had enough oil. So therefore, there was no miracle on the first night. But according to this, there was a miracle even on the first night. We just pulled the carpet under that question. They didn't even have enough for the first night. So the Bet Yosef's question is not even a question. So look how beautiful this is. It answers the Bet Yosef's question. It answers why there was a seal of the Kohen Gadol. It answers why there wasn't enough oil. But hot habitin of Kohen Gadol. But ladies, we're in trouble. We've answered so many questions, but we have aroused a bomb question as we say in the yeshiva. And that is, see, it sounds so beautiful, but I'm sorry, I have to be honest to tell you that there's a big question on this. Do you know that not all oils are the same quality? Who knows that better than a lady? There's different qualities of oil. Exactly, different qualities of oil. And even in the Beit HaMikdash, there's different levels and standards of oil. 
For example, the oil of the menorah must be the highest standard. It's called shemen zayin zach katit lamaor. What does that mean? First press. First press means that when they take the oil and they press it, the first juice that comes out of that olive, only the first press is kosher for menorah. Anything that comes out subsequently, second press, third press, not kosher for menorah. So it's a very uh, specific type of oil that can be used for the menorah, which is the highest quality. It's called katit lamaor. Got it? However, what do you do with the second press and the third press oil? That's kosher for menahot. But it's not kosher for the menorah. <laughs> so now, we're back to the problem. So you tell me, oh, they found the Pajemin. And it was the Kohen Gadol's. And it was Minhat Habitin. All very nice. But guess what? It's not kosher for the menorah. Because minha oil is a lower grade than menorah oil. Minha oil is second press, and menorah oil has to be first. So you, you know what would have happened? They would have said, ooh, we found the Kohen Gadol's oil. And you know what the rabbi should have said? No good. No good. We need, we need first press. So we're back to square one. So, I mean, that, that miracle would have really been a, a dead on arrival. Oh, we found something. And then the rabbis would have said, worthless. Can't use it. Second press. But their ladies, they did use it. How did they use it? So let me tell you what was going on in the Beit HaMikdash in those days. And this is a very important lesson just in life. You know, there's certain people that um, they fulfill their obligations in the minimum way. Uh, and that's just their way of life. If they have to go to work, they get to work exactly at 9 o'clock, they punch in, it says on the card, 90000, not a minute earlier. And when they leave, it says on the card, 50000, PM, finished. They won't stay an extra second. It's, it's an attitude. The minimum. We had guys like that in yeshiva. In seventh grade, we had a rabbi be torn out of a shlom. He told us to write a composition of 500 words. And a friend of mine, he stopped the composition of 500 words mid-sentence. And the rabbi got so angry, but, but, but you're in the middle of a sentence, but all you said is 500 words. But could you write two more words just to finish the sentence to make it uh, legible, to make it literate? Why? That'd be 502 words. You didn't ask for 502. So that's an attitude. You know, why should I do more? And I think he's still like that. Now he got nowhere in life because that's his attitude. You know, what's the bare minimum I have to do for my spouse? What's the bare minimum I have to do for my children? What's the bare minimum to be a friend? Uh, you know, it's, it's the past. And that's, that's the way he does mitzvot too. Why do I have to spend, you know, $100 on an etrog to get a pretty one? This one's also kosher for 25 bucks. Yeah, it's true. Is it passing? Yeah, 65. That's all I need. What do we need 100 for? If I can get a passing at a 65. There's people like that. Why do I have to, you know, get the matzah that was baked, uh, you know, uh, with all the extras. My regular matzah. Is it kosher? Yeah, that's it. I waste money. You know, I'd rather waste money on things that I could benefit from, not, uh, not God's stuff. I waste it on a trip, on a vacation. I waste it on a dinner. 
which is, you know, most of these people are usually inconsistent. They don't, they don't have extra money for God's business, but they have no problem to spend $50 on a spaghetti, which costs $2, and if, if even that's expensive, and it'll be uh, digested in a minute or two. But to spend on God, and they go, oh, this is not for me. Anyway, that's a separate point. You know what I'm talking about? These are people that like to do the bare minimum. But you shouldn't have that attitude, because when you're doing the mitzvot, you should do it in a... In a better way. There's nothing wrong with doing things better. I was once in somebody's house. He inaugurated his house and deal. And he asked me to come help him with mezuzot. So I went. And uh, when I came into one of the rooms, I was just checking the rooms to see how many mezuzot he needs. And I, I, I felt a doorknob. And it was a very, very heavy, heavy doorknob. And I said, wow, this is, a, this is really a nice doorknob. It has a good feeling to it. He said, what are you talking about over this hardware over here? It's... Brass through and throughout. Each doorknob is $400. Wow. That's expensive for a doorknob. I didn't know they could even be so expensive. But I said, wow, you can tell it's hashuv. Anyway, I said, you need uh, 50 mezuzot. He said, okay, how much are the mezuzot? I said, well, you got $100 mezuzot and $75 mezuzot. He says, is there $50 mezuzot? I said, you just spent $400 on a doorknob. When it comes to the mezuzot, now you're trying to get... Uh, I'm not saying... You, you, you should spend, uh, 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 you know, uh, $400 on a mezuzah, but whatever the most expensive mezuzah is, that, it shouldn't be less than the doorknob. It should get the best. But there's an attitude. It's kosher. What do I have to, you know? For my stuff, I'll get the mehadrin, mehadrin. But for God's stuff, you know, he can get away with, with, with the cheap stuff. And that's, that's not a right attitude. Whenever you're doing mitzvot, I believe the attitude should be is not what I can get away with, but how can I do it in a more beautifying way? And I'm going to show you in a minute it's to your advantage. But of course, if you're doing God's work, why wouldn't you want to do it in a more beautifying way? Even though you don't have to. So listen what the rabbis say. When the Kohanim Gedolim used to go to the store to buy the oil for their Minhat Habitin, they would come into the store and they'd say, Oh, Kohen Gadol is here. Uh, how can I help you, Mr. Kohen Gadol? Oh, I came to buy some oil for my habitin. Oh, great. Second press. Uh, third aisle. No, no, I don't want second press. I want first press. Yeah, but you don't have to use first press for your minha. It's much more expensive. It's double the price. Why don't you go use second press? Because it's my minha and I'm bringing it every day and I want to use the, I want to use the best. That was the practice of Kwanim Gedolim in the olden days, that they were super strict when it came to their mincha, they did more than they had to. And you know what ended up happening? When they found this flask, which was minhat habitin oil, they were able to use it for the menorah. You know why they were able to use it? Because the Kwanim Gedolim in those days were mahadrin mina mahadrin on their mincha. And that allowed the oil to be used for the menorah. And that's why we introduce on Hanukkah this level of being mehadrin, mehadrin to commemorate the kohanim. That when it came to their personal menahot, they acted in a strict way, which actually allowed us to use that oil, which was not designated for menorah, but we still were able to, yes, use it for the menorah. And that's where the Mahadrin, Mina Mahadrin, enters Hanukkah. Am I clear? Beautiful. Now, what does it do for us? I'll tell you, it does a lot for us. 
I asked a simple question. So you're telling me we had the, uh, the lights of the menorah and the oil and the miracle, it lasted for eight days. That means the small amount of oil became more. It's a miracle. Now, you must have heard this once before, that whenever God does something, it's always measure for measure. Midah keneged midah. God doesn't just do things unless we did something first to earn a reaction like that. It's action and reaction. So God always waits for our action, and then the reaction is going to be commensurate to what we did. Midah keneged midah. If a person, let's say, helped somebody that was down and out, so God will make sure that, God forbid, if he's ever down and out, somebody will help him. And he's oh, midah keneged midah. Look at that, it came boomerang, came right around to me. It's always like that. So whenever you see God doing a miracle of some sort, you always have to ask, well, what did we do to deserve this reaction from God? What was the action that triggered the reaction? So I asked a simple question. What did we do to trigger a reaction of God to make more oil? No, you know what we did? When God saw the Kohanim, that they did more than they had to with their oil, they didn't have to use uh, first press. So the moreness of the Kohanim Gedolim activated the miracle of the moreness of the oil. More begets more. That's the Midah Keneged Midah. Because they did more than they were obligated. Now, of course, they did it in a qualitative way. They used the oil. In a qualitative oil, they used the better oil. God says, I will now make the oil quantitatively more. And therefore, you'll be able to use it for longer time. And that's a great lesson. I'll tell you why. More begets more. Because all of us, nobody excluded today, lights the menorah more than they have to. But tonight, uh, all of you are going to light menorot and you're going to light five candles or five lights. How much do you really have to light? One. That means you're lighting 500% more than you have to. And on the eighth night of Hanukkah, you're actually lighting 800% more than you have to. I mean, talk about doing something in a large way. You only have to light one and you're lighting eight. And uh, that doesn't even talk about the way the Ashkenazim light the menorah. You see, in my house, we only light one menorah for the whole family. So I'm lighting on the eighth night 800% more than I have to. But by the Ashkenazim, everybody lights their own menorah. So you went from an obligation of one candle per house and now you got... Ten minorot in every window from every kid, and that's I don't know. It's not eight hundred. It's ten thousand percent. What does that do? But I'll tell you what it does. During Hanukkah, God looks at what a person needs. How does he know what we need? Well, he knows what he needs because he knows, and we ask for things and so on and so forth. But when God sees that we're doing more for him, God tells the ministering angels, don't give them what they need. Give them more. 
multiply their blessings, give them extra, and the prosecutor says, extra? Why should we give them extra? God says, well, look how much extra they're giving me for these eight days. I only told them to light one nid, and I never saw a Jew light one. Because they have activated a moreness in halakha, and to do more than is obligated, that activates God to give more than is necessary. So that's why they talk about Hanukkah being a tremendous time for blessings and a tremendous time for the shefa and a tremendous time for the, for the, uh, for the flow of, of, of influence coming down in a, in a great way. It's because we are activating it on at the time. Now, most people don't even know they're being strict. Most people when they're lighting the menorah think this is the way you do it. Because that's the way we've done it for 50 years, 100 years. But in truth, there's a, there's a, 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 a cheaper way to do it. And nobody opted for that cheaper way. And even now that you know about it, I guarantee nobody's going to go home and say, that's it, I'm done with this five candles tonight. I'm done with that. I'm lighting one candle. I'll eat five jelly donuts, but I'm not lighting five candles. Nobody's going to do that. Everybody's thrilled to pieces to light the menorah. Even now that you know it's much more than you have to do, you're still going to do it. And that activates God's mercy in heaven to say, that uh, I will do more for them as well. So that would be another reason why we do mehadrin. I'd just like to review what I said uh, so far. I have one more uh, 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 idea and then I'll let you go. The first mehadrin I said was that the kohanim were mehadrin, that even though they could have used non-pure oil, they chose to use pure oil because they didn't want to use the Greek oil, because that's what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to use their, you know, ideological, uh, tainted oil, and therefore we said, no, we're not, and, and that's whole, we went to war for this, we're not, we're not going to use your oil, therefore we used, and we were strict, and therefore since we were strict, therefore Mahadrin enters Hanukkah. And the second reason is that what they found actually was Menha oil, and the reason why they were able to use the Menha of the Kohen Gadol's oil for the, for the Menorah was because the Kohen Gadol was strict. And he used higher grade oil, and that allowed us to use uh, 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 for the menorah. Hence, we also are mehader as well. Third and final uh, interpretation. And this to me is the most beautiful. All these interpretations that we talked about today assumes that the word mehadrin means to do more than you're obligated to do. Hidur. Hidur mitzvah. But that's not the way that she explains the word mehadrin. You believe it? Rashi in the Gemara, when he talks about mehadrin, he says, mehadrin, I'm quoting now, mehadrin ahar mitzvot. Those people that pursue and run after the mitzvot. There's certain people, there's certain people, uh, what happened, this Hanukkah? Uh, uh, okay. There's certain people that run after the mitzvot. It's called mehader. They can't wait to return. They return to the mitzvah. Let me explain to you better. Did you ever go to a, 
uh, assume when a man finishes a piece of Gemara. So at the siyum, the men read a certain paragraph at the end of the Gemara, and it says, Hadran, Hadran, Alan, Hadran. What is it, Hadran? Hadran doesn't mean we finished. Hadran means we will return to you. We're telling the Gemara, although we finished with you, but we're not done with you. We're coming back. Hadran, we will return. And that's where the word Mehadrin comes from, to return. That somebody that has a desire to return and to pursue a mitzvah, that's called a Mehadir. So it's not talking about doing a mitzvah in a more qualitative, better way. It's an attitude of the way people uh, view the mitzvot, and therefore they're so important that they run after them and they pursue them. They are mehadirin. Good? Beautiful. Now watch this. So there's another part of Hanukkah that I didn't discuss yet, but I'll talk about it now, and that's the war. Listen, that's a very, very important part to discuss. We went to war against the Greeks, and that was on the battlefield. And it was a tremendous upset. We were the underdog, and they were the favorite, and we beat them. As it says in the Alanisim, Masarta Giborim biad halashim, verabim biad ma'atim, and the Sha'im biad sadikim, temeim biad tehorim, zedim biad osketoratecha. You know the, uh, the prayer. Now, when did the war end? Which day on the calendar? Oh. 25th of Kislev. 25th of Kislev. You ever hear Hanukkah? Why is it called Hanukkah? Hanukkah. That they rested on the 25th. Which the war ended on the 25th. And they said, Woof, it's over. And that's when they rested. Now, what does that mean, they rested? Very good. Very good. Rested doesn't mean that they went to have a beer and then they went to, maybe went to the local pub. Or Hazaku Baruch. They didn't just rest, meaning, and say, go to sleep, like we mentioned. Actually, the same day, they went straight, they made a beeline from the war to the temple. And what did they do? They lit the menorah. Now, what's the rush? What is the rush? I mean, if I was there, and it's a good thing I wasn't because I would have messed the whole thing up, I would have said, listen, everybody's tired, go home, we'll come back after the weekend, and uh, we have to fix this bed to Mikdash. Everybody bring your Lysol and your Purell and your brooms, and we've got to clean this place up. But listen, now's not the time for that. Now we have to just recover from the walk, go clean up, there's blood on your hands, and people are all, you know, fatigued. We'll see you next week. But that's not what the Hashemunayim did. They went straight to light the menorah. What's the explanation? So I'm explaining to you. How would a Greek define victory of a war? The way he would define it is, you beat the enemy, now you're free, now you celebrate. Now if we would have reacted like a Greek, so then, although we won the physical war, but we lost it, because we're defining victory like a Greek. 
That victory means now we're free to just do whatever you want. Make a ticket right parade, go blow up uh, cars in the street, go uh, wreak havoc, make chaos, which the Greeks probably would have done. Exactly. So, World Cup, exactly. How, how, how do the Greeks celebrate victory? Go crazy. Freedom, freedom from anything. Now, if we would have reacted like that, although we might have beat them on the battlefield, but the Greeks would have said, they're thinking like us. We got into their brains. We're the victor. Because they're defining victory like we would define it. And that's a loss for us and a win for them. So therefore, to really win the war, once we have freedom, we have to show what does a Jew do when he has freedom? He runs to the Beit HaMikdash and he lights the menorah and now we're able to serve Hashem properly and we're able to do mitzvot again. Now the Greeks, when they saw us light the menorah, same day, you know what they said? We lost. When was the loss registered? Not on the battlefield. It would be pending on what we do right after the war. And the first thing we did right after the war was what? Light the menorah. That's a big thing. And therefore, it showed the Jewish attitude that right after the first chance we have the ability to serve, we're not going to go to sleep. We're going to serve. There's a famous story of the Klosenberger Rebbe. They might even have a, a, a video of it. When they freed one of the concentration camps and Eisenhower, who was a general at the time, went to visit the camps and they have a big dais set up at the camps, you know, however, and the people are there and the, the general is there and uh, they asked Klosenberger Rebbe to speak and Eisenhower asked the Rebbe, these are people that went, just went through Gehinam and back and it just ended, it's over. So he says, what do you need? <laughs> That's a loaded quote. What, do you, what don't we need? <laughs> what do they have, these people? And uh, Klosenberger Rebbe says, Sukkot's coming. And uh, we don't have any Lulavim and Etrogim in the camp. If you can provide us Lulavim and Etrogim. That, that's what the Rebbe's asking. Which means the moment, and Eisenhower acquiesced, and they sent from Italy Etrogim to the camp. So they could, that means the first thing, you got your freedom. Okay, so what are you going to do now? Now we've got to shake a lulav. That's the first, first business for first business first. Get us a lulav and a trog. He didn't say, we need soap, we need a toothbrush, we need clothes, we need normal food. First thing is, If you look in the al which only talks about the war, what does it say right after that? What does that mean? And afterwards, we went to the Beit HaMikdash and we lit the menorah. You know why it, it's written in the Al-Nisim? The Al-Nisim is not talking about the lighting of the Menorah miracle. It's talking about the war. What are you mentioning the Menorah? And if you're going to mention it, why don't you mention it in a dramatic way? It sounds like it's mentioning it in such a casual way. Oh, and then afterwards we went to light the Menorah. Wow, talk, talk about downplaying the biggest part of Hanukkah. Yeah, and afterwards we lit the Menorah. And afterwards the sea split. <laughs> it's taken a major item and just minimizing it. But it's not because it's saying... That right after we finished the battle on the field, we went to, the, to light the menorah. That's, the, that's when the war ended. We're not focusing on the miracle of the menorah. We're focusing on the 
attitude that the Jews had that they understood what they do with freedom. Freedom must be only now to serve. And that's why is key. Right after the war was over, bing, they let the menorah. So now we answer that question, ladies. Who were the original Mahadrin after the mitzvot that ran after the mitzvot and were diligent and pursued mitzvot and couldn't wait to return to mitzvot? You know who the original Mahadrin was? The Hashmonaim. The Hashmonaim. They were Mahadrin in the Rashi sense of the interpretation. That they returned to the temple. They returned. The first chance they had, they were Mahadrin. And that's why on Hanukkah, we also introduced the element to be Mehader. To be Mehader meaning Mehadrin, that also we pursue, and therefore we light the menorah. We're modeling the attitude of the Hashmonim that they had. And therefore, if you're pursuing a, a, a mitzvah, that's not only menorah, it's an attitude of life. So when we light the menorah, we're actually commemorating, and this is a big hadush I'm saying, we're commemorating the victory of the war. Yes, you wouldn't have thought that. I always thought the menorah is commemorating the miracle of the oil, and halal is the war. But actually it's not, because when was the war won? when the Jews lit the menorah and we defined victory on Jewish terms. And therefore, when we light the menorah, we're remembering that moment that they came off the battlefield and lit the menorah. That's called mehadrin. That act of lighting the menorah reminds us of the, the mehadrin, of the return to a mitzvah, the first chance you have, the, the, the pursuit of a mitzvah. So yes, the lighting of the menorah actually is also to commemorate the war. When the war ended, according to Jewish values. And I'll just end with one, one thought that proves this point. You know, ladies are obligated in the lighting of the menorah. Just like men. Ladies are equally, it's equal rights. It's a, it's a new world, ladies. Ladies are obligated just like men. And the Gemara says, because they were part of the miracle. Even though lighting the menorah is a positive commandment that's bound by time, and ladies are normally exempt, but not on Hanukkah, because you were part of the miracle. So therefore you're obligated. Can I ask you, what miracle were you actually part of? <laughs> Just for the record. <laughs> so you know what the Gemara says? You weren't part of the miracle of finding the oil. That was the rabbis, the Hashem did that. But you know what you were part of? The war. Especially, it was a lady that actually was the, the heroine of the war, Yehudit. Right? Yehudit. So wait, listen to what the Gemara is saying. So you were part of the miracle, and maybe even more than part of the miracle. You were actually in front of the miracle. And therefore what? Since you were part of the miracle of the war, that obligates you to light the menorah. What does that show you? That the lighting of the menorah is connected to the miracle of the war. Levantem? Because you were part of the miracle of the war, therefore you have to light the menorah. What's one thing have to do the other? Because that's exactly what the war represented. How to define the victory of what a Jew 
is considered a winner and what a, and a goy is. If we would have finished the war, and like I said, went in the streets and opened up Maccabee beer and start to celebrate and scream in the streets and block traffic and start making all sorts of noise, they say, okay, so they won the war, but they, they, the reaction is a Greek reaction. But the fact that we lit the menorah, oh, that's what Jews, that's, that's a surprise. And it was since ladies were part of the miracle of the war, they have, to, they have to commemorate the war as well. And how do you commemorate the victory of the war? You light a menorah. So the menorah has a double, double uh, element to it. Not only the miracle of the oil, but the victory. And that's why we are mehadrin. We are reminding ourselves of the original mehadrin, the hashmonaim that went straight from here and they returned to the temple. And therefore, it, 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 most people don't know this. When you're lighting the menorah tonight, you're not only lighting to commemorate a miracle of oil. You're lighting it to remember what they did on the day the war was over. They went to light the menorah. So that's why we're lighting the menorah. To show us that that's a, that's, that's a Jewish way to celebrate independence. That's a Jewish way to celebrate freedom by doing something, uh, something for God. So uh, we've given you three, three different approaches which I think all are, all are actually beautiful. Blessing is that uh, it's a miraculous time, and just like a Kadosh Baruch who has performed miracles uh, in the times of yore, uh, these holidays are uh, cyclical, that means the energies repeat themselves every year, so it is a miraculous time, and uh, it is our prayer on the uh, remaining nights of the holiday that Borei Olam should make miracles for us. Keshem lanu nisim nisim in the zechut, that we are not only doing the mitzvah in an entry level, but because we are part of the special group that's called Mehadrin Menem Hadrin.